mentioned earlier, today we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and in the reading that we had at the very beginning, our uh, call to worship was from 1 Corinthians 11, and it tells us that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, as our, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, we come together uh, as a church. In the first place, I hear when you come together as a church. So it's something the Lord wants us to do together. That's why we do it as a church, uh, as a community of believers. But we also recognize that there's an important uh, individual element to celebrating the Lord's Supper, that we are to examine ourselves and to uh, get right with the Lord and to be right with the Lord and to uh, deal with our sins before him as we come and with each other as we come to the Lord's table. He said, tells us to do it until he comes back, until he returns. So we'll always be doing this as a church. We do it here six times a year. Some churches do it more. Some churches do it less. But we will do and we will celebrate. We will uh, obey this command to sit at the Lord's table together as Christians uh, until he returns. It's what he wants us to do. It's a commemoration of his death. Remember me. It is a time for being united together. It's a, we visibly want to show that. Part of that is that we have... We don't have literal tables to sit around, but we have uh, pews that are set aside with white uh, cloths so that we are kind of formally, as it were, together uh, in unity, sharing one cup and uh, one loaf together in unity. It's for our unity and for our spiritual blessing. It's for our good. He's given it to us so that we will grow as Christians and develop uh, as we uh, celebrate and think about the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to because our big tendency is to forget him. Remember me, he says, because he knows our tendency is to forget him. So we looked at uh, 1 Corinthians and chapter uh, 11 when we were reading at the very beginning. And he also says in chapter 10, uh, he speaks about uh, the Lord's Supper. And he says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And it's not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. So the the Lord's Supper, in in a sense, brings us back to Calvary. We're participating in the broken body and in the shed blood of Jesus. Not literally, but we're brought back to Calvary. And today I want us to go back to Calvary uh, as we study God's Word. I want us to go back. I want us to be there, as it were. Because in a very spiritual way, we are there. It never ceases to become irrelevant. Uh, relevant, sorry. It, it is never irrelevant because it affects us as believers what happened then. In a sense, the time and the distance is irre- it doesn't matter. It is a, an absolutely crucial event. And uh, the celebration of the supper takes us back there. And I want us to be back there. And today I want us to listen to the two cries of Jesus. There were more than that, but I want to listen to us to listen to the two cries that we read about in the passage. I want to look at the cry of forsakenness. And uh, then I want us to sing together and then come to the Lord's table. Uh, and at the table, as it were, I'm going to speak to you about the second cry, uh, the, the, the cry just as he died. The cry of forsakenness is a very deep and uh, mysterious cry. My God, my God, he says in verse 46 where we read, Eli, 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 lama sabachthani in Hebrew, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus Christ culling that directly from Psalm 22 that we've been singing from. The first verse of that psalm. And in so doing, he opens up to us the whole of the psalm and uh, gives, legitimizes the psalm as a prophetic opening into his heart. He's taking these first verses. He's not simply quoting someone else's words. It's a prophetic, clearly messianic prophetic psalm which opens up to us the sufferings of Jesus on the cross. And uh, the cry of forsakenness is uh, uh, the beginning uh, of that psalm. And we're going to kind of look at one or two of the aspects of that psalm as we go through our sermon today. But the cry itself reaches the core of life itself. There probably hasn't ever been a more significant cry that was ever made than this cry that is recorded for us here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a cry that reverberates around eternity. It is never an irrelevant cry. It is a cry that not only humanity and the world has heard, but the cosmos has heard, the universe has heard, the powers of light and the powers of darkness have heard this cry, and it has changed the universe forever. This cry of Jesus Christ. It's an unparalleled statement. There's nothing like it in the Bible. Nothing like it anywhere in history. It is steeped in mystery. We will never truly understand all the depth of what it means, but we are given indications and we know enough within this cry that it should transform our thinking and uh, uh, arrest us in our life. Imagine a crucified Jew 2,000 years ago and something he said on the cross can change us, can change what we are and change our understanding of this world in which we live. I want and I hope and I pray and I've been praying that it will inspire amazement and worship today in us as we think about him. And it will make you amazed as a Christian to be sitting at his table and you're amazed that you belong to Christ and amazed that anyone would do what Jesus Christ did for you, for me. And around these two cries, there are events, there are things happening and they speak very powerfully and they add to the events and spiritually they have a message that goes with the cry and uh, the cry of Jesus here, uh, we are told, comes uh, during darkness. From the sixth hour till the ninth hour, from midday, the sixth hour is midday in Middle Eastern terms, until the ninth hour, till 3 p.m., darkness came over the whole land. That is, and I want to state this categorically from Scripture, that it is a literal darkness that's spoken of here. It's a literal darkness. At the height of daytime, when the sun is at a zenith, hottest day, part of the day in Israel, there was no sun. The sun failed. It didn't shine at that point during the day. It's not fabled. It's not symbolic. It's not just a picture. It's a reality of what happened. There's uh, secular historical evidence of darkness around uh, that part of the world at that time of the day, at that time of the year. And nor was it a natural eclipse. Wrong time of the year. Too long a time. Three hours. Too long a time. Even had it been uh, the moon coming between the sun 
and ourselves today, which would have left us in darkness. So it is real. And what I want to say as well that that real darkness would have spoken to the Jews who were there. The Jews knew all about darkness spiritually. They knew what was happening. Well, I don't know if they knew what was happening at this event. But this, I do believe this and the other events that we're going to look at uh, with regard to uh, his death that are mentioned here, believe that these events, if it didn't speak to the Jews at the time of the cross, I'm convinced that as they went home and thought about these events with their Old Testament knowledge and their understanding of God in the Bible, it would have been the, certainly pushed them towards Pentecost and would have been used by God. And they would have thought a lot about these things so that when uh, the message of the gospel was preached at Pentecost, after the ascension, that 3,000 of them believed. And I'm sure that the hard hearts were beginning to be broken by some of the events here on the cross, even if it didn't immediately have an effect on them. Because, you see, the literal darkness, clearly, biblically, speaks of a spiritual darkness. The Bible uh, often equates darkness uh, with God's judgment. So that the darkness here is not just as if, you know, some people have said that, well, God's, the love of God couldn't shine God didn't want the world to see this event, so he shrouded it in darkness. There may be truth in that. But I think primarily uh, the clear message, the symbolic truth of darkness descending at this point was that darkness represents God's judgment. It often represents, nearly always in the Bible represents God's judgment. Isaiah 13, 10 and 11. The stars of heaven, speaking about the day of the Lord, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give his light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. Darkness associated with God's judgment. Second Peter 2.17, speaking about false teachers. These men are springs without water. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. Jude 6. Kept in darkness. Blackest darkness has been reserved for them. Speaking again about God's judgment. About God's wrath. And clearly the Bible uses darkness as a symbol for God's judgment in this way. And indeed for hell. For whom blackest darkness is reserved forever. And so within this cry of forsakenness, there is clearly a spiritual message that Christ in this darkness is under God's judgment. He is facing God the Son for whom there's been eternal warmth and fellowship and love with God the Father through God the Spirit. He is here under God's judgment in our place. So that brings us all to Calvary because he's not there for himself because he's never done anything wrong. He's not there because he's sinned or he's let God down, let God the Father down. He is there in our place. That is why he's our Savior. God made him, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, who had no sin to be sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. So that was happening there, that God or Jesus Christ was being made sin. Psalm Isaiah 53 that we know so well. So, so many of us, are, again, another prophetic chapter from the bowels of the Old Testament. Saying that he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
the punishment that brought us peace was on him. So we have here something massive happening in the darkness at a really big God event. There's no one else involved. Everyone else, as it were, are bit players around this event. Because here is God the Son being plunged into darkness, uh, uh, symbolic of God's judgment. Christ, the light of the world. I am the light of the world, he says. And yet he's plunged here into darkness by the Father, who is the source of all the light. And there is this immense tension and darkness, and I'm sure the darkness does kind of shroud it for us so that we, we ultimately don't know uh, exactly what that meant and what it was involved in that. But there was darkness which symbolized that Jesus there was suffering and dying in our place. So we might not feel like we're under God's judgment. We might not feel like we need to be saved. But here is an event which tells us that uh, in the light of God, we need Christ Jesus to be our savior. What was the darkness like for Jesus then? Because it was a spiritual darkness. What was it like? Well, the most we can learn about what Christ suffered on the cross is in Psalm 22. Because it's emotional, it's personal, it's experimental. It opens up to us what Christ was experiencing on the cross. It's an unbelievable testimony. And uh, it is clearly uh, messianic and clearly prophetic in declaring, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He takes Psalm 22 as a window into his soul. It's glorious to see this into the mind of Christ himself. Awesome. It's a privilege to sing it and to sing these words together. It's all of Christ. I'm not sure, and I, I, I don't know where I stand with the other commentators on this, but I'm not, I'm not sure whether it ever applied to David in his, who originally wrote this psalm, the psalmist, ever, if, whether actually, in reality, the events of Psalm 22 were events in David's life. They may well have been at a secondary level, but they may not have been. It may well have been a pure, dictated, prophetic message of the sufferings of Christ. But clearly we can see that that darkness for Jesus meant he was abandoned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was abandoned on the cross. This was the peak of Jesus feeling isolated and alone. Now remember, we, we, that's a, an enormous concept. Because the whole concept of the Trinity reminds us that God was never a big enormous, lonely God in heaven who needed to create human beings in order to have fellowship with people. There was this outstanding relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity. There was fellowship and joy and love and intimacy between these three persons in a unique and in an amazing way. And yet here, Jesus Christ feels the peak of isolation and loneliness, which he was beginning to feel from the moment he entered Mary's womb separated from God emptying himself of what he had enjoyed for eternity and uh, you know it's, a, it's definitely a, a kind of heightening of that loneliness in John 16 when he's speaking to the disciples shortly before the cross he says to them uh, you're going to leave me all alone he says to the disciples he knows that he knows they're going to abandon him 
Are you tempted today to abandon Jesus Christ? I hope not. Because Jesus knows, and that hurts him. You will leave me all alone, he says, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And so even at that point in Gethsemane, that point where he was uh, kept, that point where angels ministered to him, he sensed the Father with him. He wasn't alone. And now, he says, my God, you've forsaken me. My God, you have forsaken me. God the Father has turned his back on Jesus Christ, the sin-bearer. Inexpressibly bleak experience for Jesus. God says, or it's said of God in Habakkuk 1.13, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. And on the cross, Jesus symbolized to God all evil from us as our being the sin bearer. So God couldn't look and it turned his back on it. No sense of God's love. No sense of God's fellowship. No sense of God's communion. Didn't say my father, said my God. It was still his God, but there was no sense of uh, fellowship with God. Now, I may a caveat here. This was not, and it must never be considered, as absolute separation from God. That is impossible to happen. There could never have been absolute separation between God the Father, God the Son. God would have ceased to have been God. God would have had to have died, as it were, there on the cross, and that can never happen at that level. It's not a deep, intrinsic separation. It's a judicial separation a sense of separation, a feeling of separation, no sense of God being there. Sometimes when, when you love someone and there's a, something happens between them, between you and someone you love, you don't stop loving them as a father to a child, for example. But maybe the sense of belonging, the sense of love is broken. There's a barrier there. And that is uh, what is happening to Jesus Christ. He's not a sinner on the cross doesn't become a sinner. He becomes a sin bearer. Bearing our sin, not his own. And yet God is silent. This is the deepest pain that could ever have been experienced within uh, God. So there was abandonment. There was also abuse. In Psalm 22, it speaks about uh, Jesus Christ being abused and uh, abandoned. Or Jesus sensing that. Um, from other people around him and it also speaks about it uh, in all of the gospel uh, messages sorry I'm just looking up here um, where people ordinary people turn their backs on God all who see me he says in verse 7 of the psalm they hurl insults shaking their heads he trusts in the Lord let the Lord rescue him let him deliver him People around the cross were saying, come on, come down from the cross. You're the great Messiah. You're the great Savior. He's calling for Elijah. Let Elijah bring him down and uh, release him from his suffering. Those that he had come to save rejected him. He was lashed verbally and physically, adding to his loneliness on the cross. Not only was he abandoned, but he was also abused and, of course, he was attacked. And this is a, probably a third element of the psalm uh, that's very powerful that we've been singing about. Not only was the wrath of God being poured on him and God turned his back on him as a sin bearer, 
and was he abused by people around him, but he was attacked by the very powers and forces of hell themselves. Now, I believe powerfully that in the symbolism of Psalm 22, all the references to animals, uh, wild animals, are references to uh, the uh, satanic attack that he underwent on the cross. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey. Dogs have surrounded me. Deliver my precious life from the power of the dogs. Christ calling out. He's just surrounded. He wasn't physically surrounded by wild animals, but there was this kind of wildness of darkness going around him where the powers of darkness were ranged against Jesus Christ because they recognized, if we can take it, let's take a step back from it. God is good and God is all-powerful. Satan rebelled against that and was evil. Satan wants to uh, defeat God. And wants to be the ruler of the universe. That's what he always wanted. He wanted darkness to overcome light. He was proud. And uh, so he wanted God's place. And this was his opportunity. If he could kill the son on the cross. If he could take his life. If evil could be victorious over good. And Jesus could be killed by the powers of darkness. Then they would have won. Evil would have had the victory. There would be no salvation and the world would have ended as we know in terms of hope and in terms of life. And he, that meant he was the most alone he could ever be because he was facing that fight against evil and darkness. And they, in that darkness, they raged against him and raged against him and tried to take his life, tried to kill the author of life because if they had done so, they would have been victorious. And that would have had massive implications for us all. So, what does the darkness say to us? Well, it reminds us today about Jesus being our saviour, doesn't it? That we can't pay. You know, when we've looked, even briefly with my limited knowledge, when we've looked at that cry, can we stand there? Can we take God's back being turned? Can we take the rejection? Can we take the attack of Satan and darkness? No, we can't. No one has ever been able to say no to death. No one has ever been victorious over death in this life. None of us, none of us. We all face that power. And Jesus Christ has done that in our place because he's the Savior. Only he can make peace between ourselves and God. Only he can pay the price for our sins because we are under sentence of death. Or we were under sentence of death till we came to Christ. But we've been saved. We've been redeemed. So what happened then has been so that we don't need to face the darkness. John, um, Isaiah 53. I'm the light of the world. Uh, sorry, we've looked at Isaiah 53. John 8, 12. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That is what Jesus says if we come to him. Because he experienced the darkness and the wrath and the separation and the, the punishment of God and the death that came with it, which we'll see in a minute. We don't. Can you see that? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never have, uh, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So that more than that, in that kind of real way, when we feel abandoned, when we feel abused, or when we feel attacked... We can take that to the Lord Jesus Christ and know his company and his closeness and his salvation and his relief and his redemption and his love and his forgiveness. 
And you say, well, I don't know if I can come to Christ. I've committed too many sins, too many dark sins. I don't think Christ is big enough to save me. Please, see the Savior and recognize that you can't pay the price. You can't wash yourself clean from the sins before God. But Jesus offers to do that. He's paid the price. He has faced the powers of darkness. He has come to that place where he can be a redeemer. So we have that great hope that we needn't be in spiritual darkness. Now the Lord's table is for those who have come to recognize the light of Christ. Who have come to the light of the world and recognized him as the only savior. If you're still in spiritual darkness, if you don't understand what Jesus has done, if it means nothing to you, then the table will do you no good. No one can be saved by coming to the Lord's table. The table is for the Lord's people to remember him. But if you are in spiritual darkness, you do need to cry out. Uh, because nobody can open your heart but Jesus Christ himself to see him as the only Savior. Nothing we can offer, you know. And I'm going to speak about that in a moment. We can't offer anything in order to gain our place with Jesus in heaven and eternal life. But I want to, us to sing now. And then when we sit at the table, to play uh, at the Lord's table. And uh, the cry uh, isn't actually given in this passage in Matthew. We're told he cried in verse, 20, in verse 50. And when Jesus has cried, had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Now we know from John's Gospel, chapter 19 and verse 30, that Jesus cried, it is finished. One word he cried uh, in a loud voice. And I want to look at that just for a moment to remind ourselves again of the significance of what was happening. The three hours of darkness has come to an end. He has drunk the cup of God's wrath to its very full limit. And within that, there is great mystery for us. But by this stage, death and evil and Satan has been defeated and our sins, your sins and mine, have been paid for. It is finished. It's finished. It's done. It's been paid for. The wild dogs, the bulls of Bashan, lay exhausted and defeated at the foot of the cross. The author of life couldn't be defeated, couldn't be killed. There's great significance within that. Jesus Christ faced the powers of darkness and couldn't be killed, couldn't be taken in death. He won the victory. It is finished. Jesus at that point, and I'm speaking... Um, I wouldn't say, I'm not saying dangerously, but to get across a point, Jesus at that point could have walked down from the cross and carried on living eternally because he had defeated the power of evil. He had faced it. But he didn't because he had something more to do. He gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. Every time the Bible speaks about the death of Jesus in the New Testament. It speaks about him, well, very often, I shouldn't say it every time, but very often it talks about him 
giving up his spirit. And it's the language of a voluntary giving of himself and giving up of his spirit. He tasted death. That's what he did, and he did it for us. Ephesians 5 verse 2 explains it very clearly. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In other words, Jesus' death was a sacrifice to God. It was part of his salvation. He had to die in order to be our substitute so that we don't die spiritually. But he had to do it willingly. He had to do it freely. He wasn't taken in death. He wasn't defeated by death. He defeated evil and the source of death, but then willingly and freely gave himself over to death in our place as a sacrifice for our sins. Greater love today for you, greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. That is what Jesus has done. He has laid down his life for us as his friend. This wasn't suicide. He didn't give himself up to the bullet or to the noose or to the fall. He didn't give himself up to anything. He gave himself willingly to the Father as a sacrifice. It is finished. The sacrifice was acceptable because he has defeated the power of the grave and he was innocent. He had no sin of himself to pay. He was paying ours. So that cry says the victory has been won. Yes, it has been won in time, but it's eternally relevant for us today. You can't add to that victory. You can't do anything but accept the gift of Jesus Christ for yourself. It has been won. And you know what it says there? He cried out again in a loud voice. Now, even the little things are significant uh, in God's word. And you know that the death by crucifixion was often a death by asphyxiation. It was a death of a collapsing of uh, uh, the whole kind of structure of your, your body and of your lungs. Uh, uh, and uh, in order to breathe, uh, those on the cross would have to press up uh, their legs in order to be able to get their diaphragm to breathe. And of course, that took their strength away and uh, hastened. It was a very slow and painful death, but it, it meant breathing became very difficult. But here we're told that in a loud cry, not giving in to death, not because death was an inevitability for him. It wasn't. It was never inevitable. He defeated it and in a loud voice says, it is finished. I have done what is relevant for you and for me and for every single Christian. And this event had massive significance. The darkness spoke powerfully of the cry or, or spoke into the cry and so does the, uh, the cry here, the events around it. The curtain of the temple. And you know these things, don't you? The curtain of the temple, we're told, is ripped from top to bottom. Massively significant. After the cry, 
that it is finished. God from heaven not only brings or ends the darkness, but opens up this curtain, which was a separating curtain between the Holy of Holies where God was and the rest of the world. And you couldn't enter there except once a year the priest would enter as the representative of the people bearing their sin, offering sacrifice. But Jesus has done that. He's our great high priest. He's offered himself the sacrifice. So the curtains open, which means we have direct access through Jesus Christ when we take him as our Savior into God's presence all the time. It's an amazing cry to be praying people because our access is into God. The curtain of the temple is open. The way is open. The atonement has been successful. Unfettered access. But also there's an earthquake reminding us that the event isn't just an event which affects humanity and you and I, but it affects the whole cosmos. It affects the universe. So that even if we are silent, Luke 19, uh, 40 says, the stones will cry out. And the stones cry out in this event, in the earthquake, that Jesus Christ has won the victory. That they will know a redemption themselves. That the world itself will be set free. And that the cosmos will be renewed. Because of what Jesus has done here, the wrongs, the curse, the brokenness will be put right. And there's also resurrections. Very mysterious event that um, uh, goes alongside the, the final cry. People were told believers are resurrected in Jerusalem and they appear after Jesus' own resurrection to many people. And uh, we're not told anything about them. It's just staggering. What on earth happened? But I do think that if we remember the darkness and if we remember the resurrections and all the people who saw the resurrections, they, it must have had a powerful effect on making them come to understand and believe and know who Christ was on the day of Pentecost when the cry goes out, you have sinned and you have nailed this man to the tree. He is the Savior. So these events must have had a great effect on the 3,000 who became Christians uh, on that day. It prefigures our own resurrection so that if we die, and when we do die, if we die before Jesus comes back, that our bodies will go in the grave our souls will go to be with Christ, but that is a temporary time until our bodies too are resurrected because of what Jesus has done and the resurrection that comes with him. So just as we celebrate together and as we sit at the Lord's table, can I just remind you of the great love of Jesus Christ for you as a believer. Greater love is no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what troubles you have. I don't know what weight you bear as you come to the Lord's table as a Christian today. But I want you to refocus your life, if it needs it, on what Christ has done. The privilege of belonging to Christ. However much you've been abandoned, abused, attacked, know how much Christ loves you that this should be the perspective that changes your whole life because you are safe in him. That what the worst that can happen to you, you are safe in him and you will live eternally with him and that he is worthy. He is worthy. And in gratitude that we rise from the table and give him our all. We give him our all because of who he is. 
is worthy of giving our all living sacrifices. In light of God's mercy, brothers, I say to you, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. That we give him a sacrificial life, not in order to kind of please or, or, or not in order to pacify him, but in gratitude we give him our life in return. Surely that's what the table's about, reminding us of that. For the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Not just the dregs, but our all. And may we sense that and know that and feel that today as we sit at the Lord's table. I'm going to give thanks to God for the Lord's table and ask him to bless what we do. And in so doing, if someone will take the time to go for the children and to bring them in so that they too witness the sacrament, which we believe is important for them to witness uh, today. So let's bow our heads at the Lord's table and pray. Gracious God, we rejoice and give thanks in the privilege that we have today. We recognize that there is a joy in the Lord's Supper. We also recognize that there is a solemnity there. It is timeless. It takes us straight back into a, an age from a long time ago, but in God's providence is timeless. It bonds us to the Christian church from the first century right through all the centuries as a sacrament that has been done throughout these generations. It is given by you, so we come with your direct command. It is an honor and a privilege. Indeed, it is a command. We ask, Lord God, that we would benefit from participating today in the sacrament as you've intended, that it would be spiritually alerting and arresting for us, that we would sense and know your presence, that we would take time in this busy, hectic, chaotic world to think about and to remember Jesus Christ, both individually and as we pass the cup corporately, praying for the person next to us, praying for our friends and loved ones in the church, and remembering that we do this together as a mark of our unity. So if there is any division among us or any disunity, Lord, bless, pray that you would forgive that and take that away and that we would be honest and open with one another. We ask that you would bless the bread and the wine that we have set apart for this use. And Lord God, we thank you for these tangible and physical reminders to us of your broken body and of your shed blood. So gracious God, bless what we do. Bless it to those who look on. Bless it to our children. And we thank you for them today and ask that you would remember them. Continue with us in Jesus' name. Amen. We uh, enjoy the Lord's table here. We enjoy participating in the Lord's table. And uh, I think probably today there are more 
uh, people sitting at the tables than there are um, cloths. So I'll ask the elders to watch for that and make sure everyone gets the uh, bread and the wine that they participate in. But it's also for us as a church. It's a time when we welcome people kind of formally, I guess, into the membership of the congregation who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because uh, we see the Lord's Supper as a, a, a great stepping stone of that profession. And um, we uh, encourage people to profess their faith and, and commit themselves to the local congregation by becoming members. And last week we had uh, Vicky being baptized, and that was a great encouragement. Uh, it was just a bit sad that she's going to be moving to London, but uh, we welcomed uh, Vicky and uh, spoke briefly about her. We also welcome uh, Alan McCrail into membership. Again, Alan can't be with us today. He joined us last week uh, and spoke uh, in front of the elders about his coming to faith. Alan is home in Inverness this weekend, and it's a communion in his home congregation. I think that's very uh, apt and fitting that he's there uh, with his family sitting at the Lord's table. Alan came from a Christian home, but rebelled entirely and completely against his upbringing and uh, uh, completely denied his uh, teaching and uh, what he knew as a child and turned away from the Christian faith and had no time for Christianity. But last year, uh, he's been living in, in Edinburgh for a number of years, and last year began to feel increasingly dissatisfied with his own life and a sense of unhappiness. And through a time when his mother who, uh, and father, both Christians, but his mother died, uh, having suffered for a long time from MS, he did notice the uh, closeness and uh, the support of the Christian community uh, in Inverness. So when he came back to Edinburgh, he felt he ought to go to church. He went to church one day. It wasn't this church. He went to another church. And then when he got home the next day, he'd been signed off work. He sat all day listening to sermons uh, from the St. Columbus website. And during the course of that day, came to faith in Jesus Christ. And I think he felt that there was something that was said in one of the sermons that particularly applied to him, that those with privileges brought up in a Christian home will be held most accountable in the day of judgment if they don't uh, respond to Christ. And that uh, spoke very powerfully to him. So Alan is uh, now a Christian and living a very different life from uh, the life he lived. And there's a great a, a deal of adjustment in that situation. So pray for him. Pray as he witnesses to his friends and as he uh, uh, seeks to share the gospel uh, with them and they notice a big change in, in everything that he is and also last night Joe Lamont who I know <laughs> he uh, also uh, spoke to the elders and uh, told them of his coming to faith uh, Joe was also, you'll be pleased to know brought up in a Christian home and, uh, but he, he, is caught, he came to realise over the last year or so, maybe two years that uh, being brought up in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian and that he had to uh, or he wasn't a Christian just because his parents were and that he had to make that profession for himself and I think camps over the last two years particularly his leaders and the talks that he's heard there have challenged him about that and also ambassadors in sport his Easter camp that he goes to uh, with Charlotte Chapel and uh, so this year he gave his heart to uh, Christ at camp which is great ongoing work of, of camps and uh, he met the elders last night which was great thankfully he, I didn't have to interview him because uh, that would have really been just too much for the poor boy <laughs> uh, but uh, he wanted to profess his faith and become a member and sit at the Lord's table again Joe uh, has no Christian friends really at his own age at school and uh, probably finds one thing uh, 
one thing pretty hard is not following the crowd and doing uh, what's wrong at school, and he would value your prayers for that. So we have three members joining us, and we welcome them very warmly to the Lord's table for the, the first time, uh, either today or, or when they, they are able to come. And uh, we'll also, I think, in the next week, we'll be having several other people joining from uh, other congregations. I've been speaking to some folk who are putting their membership here, but I think I'll welcome you all uh, at the next communion when you're all together, and uh, we'll just uh, do that then. So I welcome you uh, to the Lord's table, and I hope that each of us will be praying for uh, those who have come to Christ. And it's a challenge for those uh, maybe who uh, are looking to take that step of commitment. But we do remember that on the night our Lord was betrayed, that he took bread, and after he had given thanks, which we have done, he took that. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, as often as you drink uh, eat this bread and drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord God, we give thanks for uh, what we have enjoyed today in this sacrament. And we ask that uh, it would do for us what you intend, that it would be refreshing, that it would be a union with you, and it would be... Uh, a declaration of our commitment to Jesus Christ. We ask that we would uh, be filled with Christ more and more, that you would help each of us to be uniquely as Christ-like as we can be, and that we would fix our eyes not on what is seen, uh, but what is unseen and what is eternal. What is seen is temporary. And Lord God, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ more and have our foundation more clearly in him. So may we be embraced by your love and by your uh, concern and by your promises and by your uh, healing and by your um, restoration that you promise daily in our lives. And may we become whole people and may sin not be allowed to reign in us. So bless us today and bless everyone here. We thank you for those visiting with us and for the enrichment that they bring to our worship and our fellowship by being here. We pray that they may have sensed uh, God's presence in worship and in fellowship with us today. And as we sing together in our closing section of Psalm 22, may we reflect the joy and the gratitude that the psalm itself reflects as the words of Jesus uh, make clear his victory is won and uh, his people are uh, one for him. So, gracious Lord, bless us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.